For a long time now, I thought I was just a survivor, but I'm not. I'm the winner. That's who I am. The Time Lord Victorious. Welcome to the Trotman Podcast. I'm Mark. Hi, and I'm Lawrence, visiting from the Highlanders Podcast. Welcome back, and thank you for joining me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, Mark, as always. We've been listening to The Minds of Magnus, a Tenth Doctor story from the Time Lord Victorious series. Uh, so this is out now on vinyl, CD, and download. Um, I've got the vinyl from uh, Demon Music Group. Uh, they release the classic Doctor Who vinyls with all the beautiful artwork and pattern discs. This is another gorgeous piece of merchandise from them, really striking cover, uh, completely different to, to their normal style and the normal style of, of Doctor Who stuff. We've got David Tennant's Doctor on the front, kind of looking moodily, uh, moodily up at us. Um, we've got a bit of a hint of, uh, of the city of Magnox as, Magnox, as it's described in the story. Uh, and Brian the Ood, uh, one of the sort of breakout characters from Time Lord Victorious. And then the inner sleeve has the Time Lord Victorious timeline, which um, you get on the website and seen on Twitter. So quite nice to have a physical copy of that to refer to as well, actually, rather than um, sort of uh, ratcheting around for it on, on my phone or on Twitter. Yeah, have they made a uh, picture disc last, this time? It's not a picture disc, uh, but it's a very nice red sort of splatter. Oh, yeah. Splatter disc. Uh, so, uh, yeah, always um, the... The stuff they, they do so always so so attractive, uh, really yeah. really I nice. I wonder if they might have tried to do a Mr. Ball. Yes, oh yeah, that would have been a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so as ever, we'll, we'll be discussing this in, in great detail, including um, you know kind of last act details. So uh, there will be spoilers if you haven't heard the story yet and you intend to. So this is part narrated and, and part performed by Jacob Dudman. Um, he does uh, the 10th and 11th Doctors in this, and I, th- I think his performances are extraordinary. Um, he really he captures both the voice, the vocal tics, and, and the delivery. Um, I think it's really strong. What did you think? Yes, I think whatever else I may have to say later on in the podcast, <laughs> um, I, I can't fault his reading of this. It's really good. I think you're quite right. He catches the cadence of both David Tennant and Matt Smith and their performances I had no trouble at all believing that he was being their doctors I thought all his vocalisations were very good um, I quite, I know that you could probably criticise say the Ood characters in that they're quite flat and monotone but I think he added a lot to, to Brian and uh, Mr Ball and I liked his flipping around sometimes when it's one person doing a lot of characters you sort of start hearing them in all the characters, if you see what I mean. Yeah. But I didn't get that with him at all. It did. Uh, I had. I'd been expecting when you first asked me to listen to this. I had been expecting it to be a, a full cast drama uh, rather than a reading. But I would say it feels very like a full cast drama. He's so good at uh, differentiating all his voices. Definitely. Yeah. Um, his his oud voice. He's a very good impersonation as well of Sil- Silas Carson, who was the voice of the Ud on TV, um, and has reprised that as Brian in one of the Big Finish Time Lord Victoria stories. Uh, and at first, I did think it was him, but it is is Jacob Dun- Dunman throughout doing all the voices. Um, 
So yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's another really, 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 really close uh, approximation there, I think. Um, how do you feel about other people playing the Doctors? Obviously, probably most recently we've had David Bradley as the first Doctor in Twice Upon a Time. Yeah, I I don't have any strong opinions on that. I mean, it's if you're going to say, oh, no, it has to be the actor who it, who it was, then you're going to cut off a great deal of the, the history um, for, for new adventures and mm-hmm. things. And I think that each actor kind of has their own thing. They can grow the characters a bit more. I found David Bradley, I thought, was excellent. Um, and going back when they showed his sequences towards the end of the 10th planet at the beginning of the, um, I've forgotten the name of the Christmas special with him and... Twice upon um, a time. Twice upon a time, yes. When they showed that sequence, I did actually go back and watch it for a comparison. He does have a different reading of the character, but it didn't feel out with what the character would have done. I mean, I think Richard um, William Hartnell's performance is quite rigid in some ways, looking back at it. There's not a lot of nuance there. And so unless you were going to do an impersonation of him, which nowadays I don't think would come across very well, as long as you've got a, a, a look that is similar and you keep some of the mannerisms, I'm not too fussed. Um, because a lot of these things are also in the writing. Um, if you did something which is completely out of character for, without good justification for a, a doctor who is no longer portrayed by their original um, actor, then yes, that might be a bit strange. But I think they're very careful at keeping it. And they very often have people who have a good knowledge of that doctor um, and how that doctor might, how that actor might have sort of performed and read. So it's not a big issue for me. In some ways, I I would kind of like to see a bit more of it. Um, I thought Twice Upon a Time was a really good idea. I know that he's gone on record saying that it isn't something he feels he would want to do, but I'm sure I'm not the only Doctor Who fan who would love to see Sean Pertwee sort of doing his uh, father's Doctor. Yeah. Um, certainly, I would say about four or five years ago, probably longer now, when he dressed up as the third Doctor for Halloween. And it was a fantastic-looking picture, and you could just imagine him sort of there. Sometimes I think they're not great on the casting. I think when we had um, Adventure in Space and Time, although David Bradley was fantastic, I didn't think for his cameo that Reese Shearsmith was quite right for... um, for Patrick Troughton. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe that's because I'm not really aware of Patrick Troughton when he's not acting. Um, I think that's quite a difficult thing because he wasn't having to be the doctor. Maybe that would have been a different mm-hmm. thing and quite successful. Also, I think with that, there was a, a physical similarity that wasn't there. I was I was think of uh, Patrick Troughton as actually quite sort of brawny, sort of got a little rugby player sort of build to him. And Rishi Smith didn't have that, I felt. Um, but again, it didn't put me off. I would rather sort of have somebody else come in. And nowadays, with the audios and things, there's too much to expect every 
sort of actor who's going to be focusing on their own career after they've left being the doctor to do everything. I think mm-hmm. the commitment that people show once they leave the roles is remarkable as it is. Um, and I think it would be a bit unreasonable to say, no, you have to do everything. If your doctor is <laughs> you have to be the one doing it. So I don't, I don't have an issue with that. The sort of life sentence of, uh, <laughs> of perpetually playing the doctor. Yeah. I mean, I think it's lovely when the actors do return, mm-hmm. um, especially if you if they just decide to do it as a little surprise, you know, just a little cameo, if it's a flashback or something, um, if it's for charity, as they did with Peter Davidson and Time Crash. Yeah. Um, so, yes, I think it's, it's a lovely surprise to be able to do. Um, and I do enjoy those stories because they, they're often quite significant to sort of the development of the character, um, maybe illuminating something that they want to highlight that wasn't really there before or mm. remind you of something. So, uh, but yeah, I, I, I have no problem really with other people doing it, especially as in the case of this one where it's been done so well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Jacob Dudman for Big Finish, I think, does all the 11th Doctor stuff. Um, David David Tennant, especially during lockdown, um, seems to have done a ton of Big Finish. They've got releases, I think, lined up for the next few years with him. Um, he's done the series where he's met the fourth Doctor this year. He's meeting the fifth Doctor next year, the sixth Doctor the year after. Um, I've, I've seen that they're doing the 10th Doctor and Classic Companion series. Um, there's the Dalek Universe stuff where he's going to go in and, and meet all the sort of Terranation creations like the Mechanoids and uh, uh, and some of the characters I think from the Dalek annuals that we talked about last time. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, he's he's remade the most of um, <laughs> of lockdown and uh, yeah. Uh, I, mean, I think was... it's a great a great thing for you if you're an actor if you've been in Doctor Who because that world has expanded so much. I think probably only the Star Trek and Star Wars universes, maybe the Harry Potter one, but that doesn't seem to go in for extra adventures outside books or films. Mm. Um, But I think if you're a a significant character, let alone the Doctor themselves, then in many ways you can be set for a lifetime of having some work to look forward to every year. That's a combination of conventions and and, and big finish stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in independent dramas as well, mm-hmm. which sort of going out there, that seems to, after having grown out of it being a real sort of fan passion project, they seem to be gaining momentum as sort of not quite official, but not not frowned upon by the officials. And mm-hmm. um, quite a lot of the actors getting uh, parts in in these sort of semi-professional productions now with what you can do with your own sort of home computer in terms of editing and special effects. You did that Sill film recently as well, didn't we? That's, um, I guess, the, yeah. uh, is it, um, oh, his name's gone out of my head. Um, uh, Nabil Shaban. Yeah, another writer yeah. that wrote... Um, oh, writer. Martin. But I think the writers tended to retain the rights, didn't they, in the classic series to their creations. Um, yes. So that, that's... You still see it in the the modern series so when the credits come up Terry Nation will be in there if the Daleks have appeared Jerry Davis and Kit Peddler if the Cybermen are around yeah. so uh, so yeah I think that's quite a um, 
quite a common thing, and obviously Terry Nation is a great example of somebody who tried to then do something beyond that with the characters. So. Yeah, and and finally this year we've, we've as part of Time Lord Victoria's had that Dalek TV series uh, after a fashion that, that he was trying to do in the sixties. Uh, yes, I had a I had a little look at that after we were talking because I mean you you know because we've talked about it, but listen to one that I've not been following the Time Lord Victorious thing at all. I stick very much to the TV series and a few if there's a writer I like who's done a spin-off novel or there's an audio adventure I hear is particularly good, I'll pick that up. It's too big a world now for me to follow everything. Um, so when this was announced and I saw that it was going to sort of cross media, across uh, sort of comic books, audios, an escape room, I thought, no, this uh, not one that I'll follow. But uh, I had a look at it, and it, it yeah, it's quite enjoyable. Uh, I just watched the first episode, um, and I do like the animation. I do like that uh, TV twenty one look for the yeah. uh, for the Daleks. That's it. Yeah, we we talked about that last week's podcast, and um, coming so soon, uh, presumably deliberately after the reprint of the TV twenty one comics. Uh, it was a huge, huge amount of nostalgia and uh, and love for that. The uh, the Golden Emperor and uh, the, the 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 old Dalek City and that type of thing as well. So. Yes, I, I love that Dalek City. Yeah. Um, that that you know, sort of sixties futurism. Um, it's uh, it's something I'm very fond of, and, and something I miss a bit when they don't follow that these days. Mm. Um, uh, but yeah, if you if you go if you go back watch there's only, there's only five episodes of that, but the um, the mechanoids are in it later on as well, which is uh, which is quite a joy to see them back um, alongside the Daleks as well. Yes, so but it did look good. Now, I probably will at some point catch up with all of those. So so yeah, I was, I was just trying to to get my head a little bit around what they're doing with Time Lord Victorious, so that I had at least a little context going into uh, the minds of Magnus. And I knew, obviously, the uh, they called it the road to the dark times, so the, the classic stories mm. which they draw upon, um, and Waters of Mars from the recent one where the Doctor announces him as himself as Time Lord Victorious. So it, that was quite good. But I, so I did need to do a little reading around it, which I suppose sort of takes us into the story, because I, I tried listening to it cold, just listening to the first um, chapter or two. Mm-hmm. And the Doctor was very good. I found myself fine with that but when Brian came in and there seemed to be allusions quite quickly to things that had gone on before I I felt that this wasn't a story necessarily that was going to play well for somebody who wasn't following the overarching narrative so perhaps it might be worth to to, say do a quick synopsis of the story before we get into some proper discussions of it yeah absolutely yeah so that, that would be something interesting to talk about because it was part of the the pre-publicity for Time Lord Victorious was that each element would stand on its own as a story. So it's interesting to uh, to hear the point of view, um, like you say, of somebody coming into it cold. So this is actually set uh, between chapters three and four of Una McCormick's book, All Flesh is Grass, which the, the two novels are the sort of the tent poles, really, of, um, of Time Lord Victorious. 
Uh, so the first of all, you've got Steve Cole's The Night, The Fool and the Dead, and then Uma McCormick's book. Uh, so basically, the, the first book is set immediately after the waters of Mars. Uh, the Doctor has left the, um, the street where um, he's, he's dropped the character off who ends up shooting herself. Yeah. Um, and he's traveled back in time to the dark times. And there's this race called the Katura, who they are going around the whole universe and setting maximum lifespans for every species that they meet. Uh, which uh, the doctor realizes is some kind of very advanced kind of via DNA virus type thing that will, you know, kind of alter the DNA of all these creatures. And it's interesting because it's a very doctor thing to do is to find an alien aggressor. Uh, that he's, he's doing this because all the, when, they, when they arrive on the planet and they, they instigate this, all the beings that are already older than the, the maximum lifespan just disappear. It's like, uh, I imagine, from reading it, it's like Thanos uh, when he... Um, you know, so he just to click, click the and, 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 and half the people just turn to dust, yeah. Um, so he, he does, again, a very doctor thing of, of turning their technology against them um, and and basically kind of wiping out the Katura. But obviously has huge ramifications because he's travelled way back in time before the Time Lords are really Time Lords. They're still fighting the great vampires and, and whatnot. So uh, he's, it's, it's this huge thing that he's had an effect on the universe. So he's he's come basically straight from that to the planet of Magnox because he knows from history that this is a place of great learning and knowledge and he can find out here whether he's done the right thing and what the, or he believes he can find out what the ramifications will be. And in tow is uh, Brian, the, the Ud assassin, who um, is, is just a fantastic character. Um, uh, so yeah, that's it. They land on the planet Magnox and uh, try to uh, try to meet the minds of Magnox. Well, while Brian just decides to go and explore on his own and uh, uh, and look for a bit of trouble. Yeah, it, is, it felt in some ways a little bit like some of the early first and second Doctor stories where the Doctor and the Companions get split quite early on and they have their own parallel adventures and then mm. meet up at the end. Um, and that was one of the things I quite liked about that. Um, Brian, obviously a brand new character for me, um, one that I liked, I've, I've always thought that although the Doctor has had non-human, humanoid companions, I thought it would be really interesting, although quite challenging for the TV series, for him to have a properly alien companion. They've touched upon it in the past when he's had, um, in the comic books, he's had Frobisher, mm-hmm. um, who's obviously stuck in the form of a penguin. Um, and I quite like that idea of, of having somebody who is very, very alien. But I, yes, I do understand the challenges of doing that sort of week in, week out for a TV show. Um, and it changes, I think, a lot of the way a lot of stories do. You would have, probably have to have a season that isn't necessarily set in contemporary Earth or the one or two stories there. It would provide quite a lot of challenges to mm. sort of why this uh, – sort of XA chap is traveling around with somebody who's permanently doing cosplay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, although that could be the way out for them, so they're on their way to a cosplay convention. Uh, so I really like the idea of him having a non-human or humanoid um, character. And I like the way that Brian, I, I presume that this is 
after the book, this is the first time we will have heard Brian as as the in, in the in the timeline of the Time Lord Victorious. So we, I thought they did well setting him up as a character. One of the things I had to pick up was this thing of him chatting to Mr. Borgs. Obviously, I'm aware of the Ood and the light mm-hmm. is the thing. So yeah, I think it needed that little bit more contextualization to who Brian was coming into it cold and why he was talking to his translator thing. I mean, you do get that later in the story when he tells um, when his, uh, his origin um, and how he was sort of trained as an assassin and things like that. Um, so I, th- I did like that, but that's one of the points which left me struggling a bit. It needed the explanation for him needed to be either seeded or fully explained a lot earlier in the story. Um, and again, with the Doctor it very much feels like a continuation of a story and an epilogue, perhaps, um, in that he's arrived there. He has his question. He knows what he's going there for. And it feels implied that you, as the listener, will be aware of what the Doctor is, not necessarily the full, the, the detail, the question, but what he's got on his mind, why he's come there. And that isn't there either for the for the uninitiated yeah because i thought they they just have him arriving on the planet don't they that we find out later that he's not arrived in the tardis that he's arrived on the the mercenary ship that um that he's captaining in at the moment um yeah so that was powered a, by the tardis yeah so that was a sort of a better way in than i suppose front loading it with with that sort of bit of backstory um, yeah, we 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 did hear Brian in one of the Eighth Doctor Big Finish stories. He has an adventure where he he meets the Eighth Doctor um, and ends up falling out of the TARDIS like Salamander in uh, the Enemy of the World. Oh, yeah, that's how he ends up in the Dark Times and then meet, meet, meets the the Tenth Doctor in the first book. Um, but what this this is really kind of a good story for him because you don't get any of his backstory until now. In the right. first big finish, um, it's, it's, it's played quite humorously. And uh, the podcast that we did about that, we said it's, it's a bit like Rimmer when he had the holo virus. And he had the little yes. penguin puppet that was uh, Mr. Flibble. So yes. he keeps saying, uh, Mr. Mr. No, Mr. Ball doesn't like that. And, uh, you know, Mr. Ball wants to kill you and stuff. Uh, so that, that was all very good. And then this is the first story, I think, really, where we get any of his point of view. Uh, and, we, and we find out what you know that the ball because he was trained, and this was a little link to Revelation of the Daleks, wasn't it? They said he was trained by the Lesser Order of Oberon, which I think the character of Orsini from Revelation of the Daleks was from the was it the Grand Order of Oberon? Yes, um, certainly it's in the novelization, the recent novelization. Yes, um, I, th- I think it's in the as far as I remember, it's in the TV episodes as well um i think because when the doctor sort of recognizes him immediately when he tries to um uh, he tries to incapacitate him as he comes through the door uh so uh so yeah that's that's all very interesting and i think it's left very open as to whether mr ball is a personality that is constantly trying to get him to kill whoever's around or whether that is brian's own brain 
because it was the, the with the oud, it was the hand brain, wasn't it? That they had a set a second brain in their hands, but then that's that was removed and replaced with this artificial translator. Yeah. So whether that is just echoing back his own murderous um, intentions, or whether it is somehow a separate personality that is that he's speaking to him. I felt like that was ambiguous and it was a, it was an interesting take on the character. Yeah. I mean, I do, do feel that it's, um, because they, they've had an assassin in the comics for, is it shade? The time world dressed in black and has the, the ball. The, head. Um, yeah. Yeah. Big ball. Head. So I think it's, um, and he's somebody who's going out. He's t- initially in that story, as I recall it, from many years ago, he is targeting the doctor, but then becomes his companion and, and changes. And I did wonder if they were looking to do something similar with Brian, that that that's a sort of trajectory for his character um, to go from this person whose default reaction is to kill. What was, I think, quite good in the writing is it's, it's never or at least in this, across this story, it's not a personal thing for Brian killing. I mean, I do, I do feel, tend, I think, towards the idea that Mr. Ball is his way of coping with it, mm. that he's divided his psyche and put that in there so that the trained killer part of him is Mr. Ball, and then he distances his, his actions in that persona by saying, no, this is Mr. Ball doing it. Mm. Um, and... And his own character, and I, th- I think what might happen, because with the story still to come, is that there's a, a greater separation of those aspects of his personality, but also a recognition that that is part of his personality, um, and then something he then gets control over, perhaps. Mm. And certainly that feels like it's hinted at uh, across the story, particularly after he had his... Um, where they have the meeting, the drinks. Yeah. Uh, and suddenly he can't hear Mr. Ball. Um, and because he's speaking the truth. So Mr. True, Mr. Ball in some way is a lie. Mr. Ball isn't a separate person. I think it had Mr. Ball been some sort of programmed thing to control him and make him a killer from the order that he would still have heard Mr. Ball. But because Mr. Ball is actually somewhere in his mind, he he in some way for a brief moment time is healed um by that having to tell the truth there's an acceptance that this is part of who he is um, but i certainly found it interesting it's a it's a nice idea but yeah i could have done with a little more thing because it's i mean i suppose if they're feeling that each part stands on its own i can see why they wouldn't do it but it, you could almost do with a little previously in time lord victorious mm. just just to set the scene where you are so i for some reason i felt that this was much more towards the exodus about 10 or 12 parts to the, the overarching narrative is that right yeah at least i think yeah there's yeah. um there's, there's there's the comics um the big finishes the novels uh there's a couple of there's another vinyl that's coming out as well as this one there's echoes of extinction uh so yeah and the cartoon series as well so yeah there's uh there's quite a lot of disparate elements yeah yeah so it it felt to me that this actually was 
set more towards the end of the day. Now, having then read up a bit more about time of victorious and particularly about the dark times and what they're saying there, there does seem to be a lot of sort of not really messing about with time, but time isn't operating in the same way in the dark times as it is for us. And actually some of my reading led me on to looking at the history of Rassilon as a character. Um, so I was thinking about the, um, the stuff from State of Decay and Rassilon's edict that wherever the Time Lords encounter the King of the Vampires, they must try to kill him. Mm. So I thought, oh, I need a, I want to refresh my memory about that. And then I came across an interesting point. Rassilon's timeline, as with anything that I think that doesn't have a, a set canon from the start and a view of this is where we're going to all the way through it, is a mess. There's at least sort of three or four different origin stories and, uh, and, and, is he, the, is he the hero? Is he the villain? Is he a neutral? Whatever. But I did quite like this idea that at the point before Rassilon and Omega's experiments that create the Eye of Harmony, that time in the universe isn't linear. And, and that the creation of the Eye of the Harmony and the Time Lords as not just Gallifreyans, but people who can manipulate time is actually an anchor point. And from that point on, it becomes a straight line. Uh, I thought that was quite interesting um, as a point. So that, so having these stories set in the dark time, but I don't think it was too problematic about this. I was quite easy to accept this race going around setting lifespan limits on, on people and the influence that they have had, that they've related to sort of all these pre-Eye of Harmony species um, who have then gone on to sort of have relevance to the Doctor Who universe, so kind of Fenris, um, Jagaroth from the City of Death, um, the Daemons, and uh, the Nessian Consciousness, and all those sort of characters. I quite, I quite like that idea. It appealed to me a lot. Um, so I was a little sorry that there wasn't a little more of that in the story. It's a very quick story. Mm. Um, it, it feels like it would have been maybe if it had been done for telly that it's at best a two-parter um, of the old series or, or one slightly longer than average episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's very much a Brian story. The Doctor's, until later on, it seems feels quite secondary to it. Um, he's he's not the, the narrative driver. Um, yeah. That, that very much comes from Brian and his actions. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, as I say, it's, it's definitely the, where we get the most of his inner thoughts and inner monologue and, and, and basically find out his backstory. Um, the Doctor's very, even for the 10th Doctor, very kind of glib and cocky here, isn't he, I find? Uh, you're walking into the, um, the, the the place where all the minds of Magnox and live and they've got all the... Uh, the terminals where you can find out information and that type of thing. Um, he meets the, is it um, Pochelle, I think, is the um, yeah. the young person that, that works there. Um, and he immediately just sort of railroads her into just saying, oh, you don't, you don't want to just, uh, you know, spend your time reading books and stuff. Come with me. And, 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 and I suppose in a way that echoes the doctor's backstory of leaving Gallifrey because 
uh, it was all about just observing and learning, you know, kind of, um, you know, kind of just uh, dusty senators. Yeah. The, uh, being, being at a distance. And, yeah, uh, so he's, he's trying to encourage that in her as well. Um, but does, you know, put a job at risk as well, presumably, by just yes. sort of railroading her along. And, and, no. her, and her life and her species. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's the thing. He, so in, in the Time of Victoria story, he's just come from blowing up a planet and wiping out the Keturah. Uh Then he's come here um, to find out the answer um, and um, jumping ahead a little bit. So it leads to the destruction of this planet as well. Um, when they when they first land and he's telling Brian about it, he says, "Oh, there's, this place is referenced in in Time Lord history, but nobody knows what what became of it." And I think immediately the alarm bells are ringing that, yes. <laughs> that uh, if something's happened to it, it's probably tied up with the Doctor's visit. Uh, so uh, yeah, the the Kutura then turn up and um, uh, end up end up destroying the planet as well. So. Uh, but the Doctor is remarkably unfazed by this, I feel. Uh, he managed to rescue a couple of members of the species in, and they, they take off in, his, uh, in the ship that he's, uh, he's in charge of at the moment. And he just sort of says, well, I didn't mean it to happen. It, yeah. even for the, normally with the 10th Doctor, you get that sort of, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry stuff. But he's part of the Time Lord, victorious um, sort of persona that, he, uh, that he's adopted. Um, of just, I'm just going to do whatever it takes and, and, and get on with it, I don't know. Yeah, that's that's where it's drifted away a bit from the things I like about the Doctor. And I, the bigger they make his character, the more significant he is to the universe, the less I find myself really connecting with it. One of the things that really appealed to me as a Doctor is, is he is just a nobody who pinched a TARDIS to go off and have a look because he didn't want to be trapped in the dusty libraries. Mm. And he just finds himself in these circumstances. The more he's in control of that, the more he's the prime mover, the less I am endeared to him. Um, So I, uh, just one of the things I'm quite glad that the classic series stopped when it did because it sort of prevented what every sort refers to as the Cartmel master plan and that mm. the Doctor had all these things planned at the end. Although I think that last uh, Sylvester McCoy series is probably the best. There are these, oh yes, I knew what was going on all the time sort of kind of things, which I'm, I'm not so fond of. They're doing it again at the minute with the recent sort of revelation that the Doctor is not necessarily a Gallifreyan um, and the sort of he or she is the reason that Time Lords regenerate and that perhaps she has some other origin beyond that. That's, it's interesting on one level as, as a way of telling stories, but it moves, I think, Doctor Who, who away from where it's best at telling stories or finding yourself out of your depth in situations and then finding a way to get through by being brave and kind and generous where you can. The more omnipotent and omnipresent and omniscient they make the Doctor, the less interested I find myself in those elements. And this does feel a bit like like that. Although, because of when it's set and what they're doing, um, 
it could end up being one of those stories that doesn't take place. Um, it could all end up being undone and set back the way it was, and the Doctor has, if he remembers it in his in those incarnations, is something that he's learned from. Because certainly, by the time we get to the end of the story, there is the little coda which takes place in the future where you do get a repentant future doctor sort of coming back and trying to um, make good at least a little bit on some of the things he said. There's a recognition that perhaps he, he wasn't right um, and that he has a degree of risk, well, not a degree, he has responsibility for what has occurred. And, and although he can't put it right, he can do a little bit to make up for it. Yes, this is the the 11th Doctor having travelled back to the dark times to find uh, the character of uh, Parashel. I think that's right. It is, yeah. Um, Who who survived the destruction of Manglox um, and was relocated to Islos where she acts as this oracle because uh, she's from a species that can that can accrue and retain vast amounts of knowledge. Um, and the doctor, the 11th Doctor turns up with a uh, a disc of, of massive amounts of information, um, which, which means that she can sort of increase her library. Um, and then this ties into another part of the Time Lord Victorious, the first episode of Daleks, the cartoon, uh, because that takes place on the planet of Islos in the well, not if not in the present, then not in the dark times, in the sort of like the, the present for the Doctor Who universe, yeah. where it, it's not as as rustic as it as it seems at the end of this story, um, and it's very futuristic um, uh, civilization where the um, you've got the. The, the huge library with the robots, uh, the robots of uh, archivists, or arch- archivians, I think they're called. Uh, so that was a that was a nice little link to another part of it. Yeah, yes, it does feel like somebody spent a lot of time sort of tying bits of wall to pins, yeah. and going, "Well, this connects to this, and that goes up there." So they've got this big web somewhere in the uh, in the hub there where they pl- they've planned it all. Uh, and that can be nice, but sometimes you don't really appreciate that until it's all done. It can sometimes make getting there a bit hard work. Mm. Um, and although, yeah, overall I would say I enjoyed this, it, I didn't feel fully included in the story mm. in a way that I feel I could listen to a self-contained uh, reading or a storytelling or uh, cast adventure mm-hmm. um, I did feel a little excluded with not having followed the stories up until that point uh, and, and I have to say it didn't necessarily make me feel it didn't hook me either didn't make me feel mm-hmm. I want to continue the rest of this I'll go back and, and read the novels that that little hook wasn't mm. there beyond needing to feeling I wanted to do a little bit of contextualization reading to appreciate the story as I was listening to it. I haven't come away from it feeling, all oh, right, I've got to get into this now. Right. Uh, that, uh, that wasn't there. It, it, I say it feels very much like a, an, an epilogue to a, to a story. And, and now from what we were talking about there, it does feel 
like is it the, the night the fool and the dead you're saying that not all um, it does feel like it's an epilogue to that mm-hmm. and you read to get the best out of it at least from what the doctor's doing you need to know that more um, it plays a lot more like say a companion chronicle it builds Brian mm. Yeah, I suppose it's so. This is as far out of character for the Tenth Doctor as you would get um, in terms of where he is in what he's doing at the moment, and the way that he's acting is he's pretty reckless and, and uncaring, isn't it? For, uh, for for the hero, I thought the the planet of Magnox was quite interesting and well drawn. This idea that they were a species that the knowledge was a currency. And that the more knowledge they accrued, the more their their craniums expanded and became more elaborate, and yeah. that was a sign of beauty to them of of having these huge, elaborate yes, uh, cranial until growth. The, the minds themselves need like frames to hold their heads up. Yeah, it's a little bit hinted at with the character of uh, is it Prem or Brem, who's the, the fixer who hires Brian. Yeah. Uh, because they, they make quite a big point out of the fact that her head is completely smooth. And I expected that to be developed a bit more, that there was maybe something more about her. And then suddenly she was gone. Yeah, I wondered about that. Yeah, they, they did make a point of the fact that she'd, she'd had any any cranial bumps or anything, it seemed like, surgically removed. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that uh, you're right, that didn't go some, anywhere, whether that was part of an early draft or... That, that, yeah. Or even something that might be relevant down the line. Mm. Uh, if they are doing this thing where time isn't necessarily the linear thing we recognize, there's no saying that some of these characters don't reappear later on in, in a different story or format. Mm. Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah, we can see them again. But, uh, yeah, I like that idea that you say that the that the, the, the ruling elite of Magnox, they need these exoskeleton suits to move around because they're, they're, they're so well-developed uh, and all in different ways. So some of them, the, uh, the sort of the, the growths out of their head have come down and covered their body and some of them sort of grow out in, in different ways and things. Yeah, and I quite like the idea of the, they're almost living computers. So when the doctor says, oh, we can hack any computer system, well, this is a living brain. Mm. Um, so not... You actually have to go through the process of of um, of appealing to them, uh, and then of course you get into the thing where he asks his question, and they just don't want to. They were not yeah. going to tell him, which I, I kind of felt. Un- Although it's amusing at the point it happens, it feels like it undercuts the point of the Doctor's story. It's, it was just a it's a MacGuffin to get him into a position where they can. To have the the um, the villains appear and they can all sort of dash on. I'm assuming that in a linear fashion, that's the very end of the sorry, what are they called the the Katura, yeah, the Katura. I'm assuming that's the end of them because I was reading the bit and I was saying it seemed that the Doctor had given them a a lifespan so they couldn't keep going around inflicting that on other people. And it's only about 15 minutes. Yeah. Basically, basically wiped them out. And there's very, very few of them left at the, at this point that the, the virus hasn't reached yet. I haven't yeah. finished the second novel. I'm, I'm about halfway through it, but you sort of recognize the point reading it where this is set. 
the third chapter ends and then the fourth chapter starts and it's some time later and it says they'd had a few adventures and tried to find some answers and I thought oh, well that's <laughs> that's where that goes that's yeah. this one yeah um, and so I think that's it's a bit risky doing that I think um, just from a, a creative point of view to just skip hoard and, and do you feel are you far enough through to feel that it wouldn't have mattered if you didn't know some of these adventures I think in terms of the book it I don't think this impacts on, on the events of the book um, right. at all. Um, it's interesting that that second book as well, The All Flesh is Grass, is set between two frames of the Doctor Who magazine comic, right. uh, Monstrous Beauty. Uh, there's In that, there is one of the panels is, is Rose going to sleep, and then the next panel is Rose waking up again. Um, and... The, the ninth doctor between them is is uh, his clothes and his face have got all scuffed up and uh, uh, right. and and that's because he's had his part of the uh, the, the um, of this skirmish uh, while while she's been unconscious and healing uh, so there's quite a nice uh, when once you start to see the whole a bit more the whole adventure you see that it's sort of uh, one adventure sits within another one and uh, you can you can see where the gaps are I suppose is that Sorry, is that story thread? Is that the vampire the yes. one that relates to the vampires in the dark times? Yes, yeah, monstrous yeah. beauty. So that's been the three-part Doctor Who magazine comic strip, which finished with last month's issue. Um, and for the ninth Doctor, that gets him back to the dark times and um, allied with the with the vampires. Uh, so that's, yeah. Uh, uh, so yeah, that was um, then in, in the book he turns up with with the vampires. Uh, so and the eighth doctor turns up with some Daleks, and it's a big standoff with the tenth doctor, uh, and that's just the opening of it. So that I say the, the books are kind of the the tent poles. That's where all the really exciting, juicy stuff happens, um, and, and the other bits and pieces happen around it. But I guess that that can, although you've got the the finite number of of elements at the moment, it's not to say this can't be expanded upon in the future, and, and more stories can't be set in and around it. Uh, you know, with with Brian or any of the characters from this or uh, or any of the others really. Uh, yeah. What I liked about just going back to saying about the um the 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 Magnoxians, I can't remember if that was what they were called, but the uh the inhabitants yeah. of Magnox that the the doctor when he first arrives talks about how this is a wonderful place of learning and knowledge and everything like that. Uh but then we quickly learn that the, although you know it's, it's it's based on you know the, the wisest people um, getting to to be in charge, that it is just really corrupt as well. That <laughs> the populace yeah. isn't happy. It says that they're greedy, selfish, self-interested, slow to react to threats to the populace. I mean, I can't even imagine what it'd be like living in a place like that. The so the you've got some of the uh, some of the people that work there. They want they hire Brian effectively to to assassinate the. The leadership, uh, yeah. which, which brings them in, but that was a it was a nice because it's not what you would expect from a civilization that that prized knowledge and wisdom, is it? No, no. There's all yeah. these things. They very often the writers of Doctor Who are very uh, very down on any form of society which is sort of so structured and has a ruling caste very often mm. that's a, a big feature of sort of bringing them down whether they're sort of aristocracies plutocracies 
in this case, um, well, they do describe it in the in the film, but yeah, and that society based on the best and the brightest, which shows that the best and the brightest aren't always so. Yeah, uh, I suppose that all power corrupts idea, isn't it? That yeah. um, that once you're in charge, uh, everything else goes out of the window. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Power becomes a mean to it to its own end. Mm. But uh, yeah, it would have been a nice that the idea of the Magnoxians would have been a nice visual one for the TV. Um, or for any of the ones that maybe a bit more visually would have made a good. I don't think it, the story is so dense that it couldn't have made a, a comic book. Mm. Um, so the, and I can see that an artist would have had a nice time, so sort of get really getting into the look of them because um, they are uh, sort of the way they're described. I, I was picturing them, picturing it like seashells. Mm. For, for a lot of them. So there were some who had sort of like conch-like outgrowths and swirls and, and somewhere it was more like coral and things like that. So, and, and actually that was the way I was picturing the whole world. It was almost sort of a grown society. Mm-hmm. Um, so quite, quite fragile in some ways, which it does prove to me. Yeah. Uh, but the other, they, they, so classic, not classic series, the uh, New Who story it reminded me of in many ways was um, Silence in the Library. Mm-hmm. Although, obviously, there's no sort of characters in that, that, that idea of a planet-wide repository of knowledge. Um, and I did wonder at some point whether they were going to sort of have some little tangential link between the, the Proves not to be at the in the end, but uh, but that was uh, one I uh, I thought of. But I suppose that's quite a a common idea because I mean it all goes back. I would feel to something like the Tower of Babel, sort of this collection of knowledge, mm-hmm. so that most societies must get to a point where at one point they decide they'll archive and collect everything they know. Um, and some do, and some don't. So there's the, all these sort of treasure troves of knowledge hidden out there in the uh, in the universe where uh, where the Doctor can can go. Um, it just happens that on this occasion he's finding one that's in the process of growing or ending, as it turns out. Yeah, because it's not because the dark the dark times only really been mentioned up to this point. We've never seen them, but. Yeah, I suppose you imagine maybe a little bit like the Dark Ages, where you know, so-called because of the sort of the, the collapse of civilization and a and a lack of progress and and, and knowledge being accrued. Um, yeah. But the um, a, a lot of the stuff in the Dark Times here is is quite positive because you've got all these civilizations that you meet in some of the other stories who, uh, until the Katura arrive on their planet. Um, are just immortal, so they've lived uh, really long lives and you know reached a, a stage where the civilizations are very peaceful, very progressive. Uh, that uh, that they are interested in knowledge and, and and that type of thing. And it's the yeah. it's the Katura's arrival that sets them back and makes it more about uh, you know just sort of survival and propagating the species. Uh, yeah, because some of the things I was reading is that it's the different ways the species reacted to meeting the Keturah. So mm. the demons 
tried to challenge them, and that led to them be effectively being wiped out, whereas the what become the vampires treat with them and are given extended practically immortal lives, but they have to feed the payoff is they have mm. to feed on others to to continue their life. There's a few others um, that get because they accept the Keturah's sort of... Because the do see it in some ways as a gift, don't they? Yes, yeah. Yeah, um, because they uh, are given this and, and accept it. They're given longer lives um, and certain advantages over others. Um, so, yeah, I thought that was an interesting, an interesting way of looking at the dark times. Um, I mean, I'm presuming that what we will end up with is some explanation of what is the end of the dark times and what is the beginning of what comes next at the end of all of this um yeah i'd imagined it was when the time lords rose to prominence and and yeah sort of uh, mapped history but um yeah uh, whether that'll be confirmed or not but yeah i think because other parts of doctor who are always about the dangers of, uh, not always, but there's often things about the dangers of immortality. Uh, you know, the doctor will sort of say, well, it just leads to stagnation and uh, and a lack of progress. Uh, was this sort of, a lot of these stories sort of go against that idea. Um, so that's that's sort of a, a bit of a change of, of perspective. Then oh. um, these, the, the ninth doctor in particular is all that sort of, um, you know, everything's got its time, uh, it, was, it was Cassandra, wasn't it? In uh, said, you know, everything's got its time, and everything must die, and that type of thing. Is, yeah, is, is, is yeah. I think that's. I mean, obviously, the most I think famous example I can think of from the series is Baruth, the trap for Barusa in the Five Doctors. Yeah, um, that you get your immortality, but it's not what you expected it to be. Um, certainly not the yeah, continuation of life as you had lived it. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of uh, sort of thing um, and even characters yeah that, that, that having an end gives purpose to what's gone before I mean even very long lived characters like the face of Bo who uh, sort of, as they say may or may not be Jack and mm-hmm. may or may not have lived for millions of years um has has a reason to be because he will at one point end. Um, yeah, when you when you don't have that, I think there has been a default position of well, eventually it does lead, as you say, to stagnation. Um, so it is interesting to see a different sort of take on that that it that there can be good uh, a good side to it. Um, although I think Minds of Mangos is a warning about that as well that. Um, Yes, you can you can collect all this knowledge, but what do you what what if you have all this knowledge but then don't choose not to if you choose then not to do anything with it? Yeah. Um, uh, we suppose it's like the Time Lords, isn't it? The the sort of um uh, a forerunner to the Time Lords uh, yeah. in that way. And they've because uh, their civilization has already been judged by the Katura. It's the Katura coming back and saying well, one, we've got a question for you, which is how can we reverse our extinction? Uh, yeah. And two, how can we kill the doctor? Um, and in return, we will grant you immortality, which they're immediately tempted by. Um, yeah. 
So, uh, which I thought it was going to be, you know, kind of pose a bit of an interesting dilemma for the doctor in terms of does he hand himself over or, oh. um, but it's, it's sort of neatly sidestepped by, uh, by Brian just slaughtering them all instead. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Brian, Brian's very much a route one sort of yeah. character. <laughs> it's, I, I do the, and you get it more maybe in the, in the big finish one is, is the way he's always unfailingly polite as well. We said uh, on the on that podcast, he's a little bit like C-3PO, um, but a deadly assassin. So uh, he's, he's always very polite and calm and measured in everything. Um, but, but as we find out in this one, Mr. Ball, or if it is Mr. Ball, he's just constantly suggesting that he kills whoever's there. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, even if it's somebody that he's he's quite friendly with, or he's going to help him. Um, yes, he gets that with uh, with uh, Brem at the end. He goes, yeah. you're, "You're happy now. Shall I end it while you're happy?" Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mr. Ball says you could die happy now. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he's constantly coming up with justifications yeah, of, uh, of why you should kill that person at a certain time. Yeah. 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 It's, um, yeah, it's very good. Um, and and yeah, really unlikely companion for the Doctor, but but a very interesting one. Yes, yeah, uh, it would be nice to see them do something like that. I mean, because obviously we've got two companions in the TV series leaving soon. Uh, yeah. Graham and Ryan are going to be on. Um, whether they'll replace one of them so that there's somebody else to join Mandip and the Doctor uh, remains to be seen. But yeah, I, I would quite like if they can find a way of doing it, having having a proper alien, just for, mm. also for a different perspective about things. It does become very sort of human centric, um, the mm. way the stories are told. Mm. Uh, it would be interesting to have a really opposing view. Um, There's this so. view that's that's been prevalent since it came back, as Russell T. Davis talked about, wasn't it that? You have to have a contemporary human in there as the as the eyes of the audience and the identification yeah. figure. But I think yeah. it could work just as well if you have a character like Romana or somebody like that. When you are on contemporary Earth, it's somebody that can hold up a mirror um, in terms of, of what their understanding of things is, and uh, it's it, it's a, just another way of looking at it. If you've got a fresh pair of eyes and a fresh perspective looking at the modern world, I think that's why the Characters like Leela, Jamie, yes, in, in the old series have worked really well because they're they're human, they're past human, but they they come to it with a different sensibility. Mm. Uh, particularly, I think Leela worked very well for that. Yeah, um, in some ways, like... she, yeah, she's the female uh, Brian. Yes, yeah. ready to kill everybody. Um, Definitely, because because like the stories like Talons of Wen Chiang, where her. A bemusement at Victorian manners and, and customs uh, is a really good way of, of looking at it because as much as it's strange to modern viewers, you can, um, you know, from to somebody from another planet, especially where they're savages and, and it's just a daily fight for survival, um, yeah. you know, the, using a, using cutlery and things like that just <laughs> would seem just kind of a, a waste of time, I guess. Yeah. So. Yeah, so... It will be interesting whether it's going to be a one companion series because that's the other sort of classic setup, isn't it? It's either multiple companions as you had with the first couple of Doctors and the the fifth Doctor or the sort of generally third, fourth, sixth and seventh Doctors tend to just have one companion at a time. So. Yeah. 
It would be nice if my um, if my uh, girl gets a chance to be the companion because I feel that through the last series, she her character was written down in favour of um, Toast and Cole and Bradley Walsh mm. because of the relationship they had as um, Ryan and Graham. I, I feel she didn't get a fair crack of the whip in the last series because uh, there is in, in the in the old series where it's drawn out and you've got several episodes to tell a story you can be more even-handed but where you've got sort of 45 minutes and it might be a two-parter story it's a lot more difficult when you've got a crowded TARDIS um, so I think it would be nice for her to, and the Doctor just to get a bit of time just for them and then introduce a new character. I think shoving two out the door and bringing somebody else in straight away would be a bit of a mistake. But we'll we'll see whether that's going to do to be part of the of the New Year story. Because I don't is that Graham and Ryan's last adventure? As yeah, you know, that's my understanding yeah. of it. Yeah, because that was filmed with series twelve, mm-hmm. uh, so and that's their last involvement. Uh, so series thirteen, which has been. Uh, filmed at the moment that we know there's going to be eight episodes broadcast next year yeah uh, on the face of it looks like it's just the two of them and i suppose that the way if it is just the one companion she does already have a family that we've seen in a few episodes she's got a mum and a dad and a sister um, yeah and a grandmother that that you could bring in for some um some supporting characters that are set set on modern day earth as well um i think that it'd be good to see more of a dad to see her dad embroiled in in um in a, in a doctor who adventure uh yeah. the type of character that he is with the you know the arachnids in the uk where he's uh he's collecting the rubbish to complain to the council and that type of thing yes pushing him into a totally strange alien adventure uh i think would be would be you know ripe with sort of comic possibility yeah when they brought, they brought in rory's dad for dinosaurs on a spaceship yes yeah yeah looking forward to it it's uh it feels like a very long time since there was last new Doctor Who to watch. So it does. Uh, it's it's only this year, but um, the nature of this year means that yes. uh, <laughs> it seems like an incredibly long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> thinking I would rewatch uh, rewatch the last series in the run up to uh, the Christmas special, not the Christmas, the New Year's Day special, mm. and, uh, and then have that. So, so get me get me back in that that headspace yeah i at least want to make time for probably last year's special or no, the year before in fact isn't it i always forget that spyfall part one was the special last year so the um the last dalek story i might watch um resolution and then uh the maybe the sort of finale two-parter from from series 12 and yes. at least try and make, make time for that so, uh, yeah. But he's just incredibly fortunate that we're getting another series next year. So uh, mm-hmm. you know the way things have been, that um, that it is actually in front of the cameras right now. Yes. So then get that out of the way and probably start the long build up to the 60th anniversary. Yeah. So it's, uh, it doesn't doesn't seem five minutes since we were looking forward to Day of the Doctor and all that celebration. It really doesn't, does it? It's um, yeah. <laughs> it is it's crazy how, how little time I think because I came into Doctor Who fairly late I only I started watching it midway through season 25 
awesome. and then watched it through and it, and it got cancelled and then I just sort of read all the target books and eventually got the videos and, and, and caught up that way that everything always seemed like um, it was in the past and it was over a long a long period but now actually living through new Doctor Who you realise how short the ten years are for a Doctor um, yeah, uh, you other than Tom Baker, but I guess you know if if I was the age that I am now in the seventies, even that would, <laughs> I'd still be going. You're leaving already. It only seems like five minutes, you know, <laughs> even even yeah. a seven year stretch like that. This, uh, yeah, and of course they, for a long time, they had much longer series to do. Yeah, so that's you, true. It was on for long. Like you've got so many stories for those doctors, even mm. William Hartman, Patrick Trout. Um, I don't know, obviously for Patrick Trump, we're missing so many of those. Mm. But the, they would have only like four or five weeks off a year. Um, and then you'd have those strange episodes where somebody was getting a, a mid-filming break, yeah. so they weren't <laughs> in it. Um, oh dear, the Doctor's been locked in a cupboard for this episode, yeah. and we can't find the key while, uh, while somebody goes off and has a holiday. But yes, it would be nice to nice to have it back. Yeah, definitely. These things fill the the audio adventures and the, and the comic books, and they, they do fill the gap. I and mean, for me, they're not quite the same thing as the TV show, but they're nice to know that they're out there mm. uh, and they're keeping it going in a way that didn't really happen in the during the hiatus. Um, I mean, we had the Virgin New Adventures and uh, things like that, but the, now there just seems to be so much material out there. Um, that if you if you want every day to be a Doctor Who day, you can do that. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, and then, like you say, the Patrick Troutons, we're getting the animations of his his missing stories as well. So it's uh, it's a nice way of revisiting those as well. Yes, and I've really enjoyed the most recent uh, Fury of the Deep. I uh, like that a great deal. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, so, but and I've enjoyed. Although uh, there are things I didn't particularly like about the way this story was done, Minds of Madrock. I did enjoy it. It was a nice thing mm-hmm. to hear again and have a have a Doctor Who story to listen to. Um, so, but but for me, because of this, it's part of a bigger story. It it didn't include me enough mm-hmm. to to really rate it. It was just like, yeah, that was a nice thing to listen to. Um, but it didn't hook me enough to then think, right, I'll go and get those books and read those comics and do that. I think the only thing it has made me do is because they did The Road to the Dark House, which has had its mm. Blu-ray release, did make me think, yeah, I'd quite like to rewatch State of Decay and uh, Planet of the Daleks, which are stories I like. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it has. it's made me want to go back to those, which isn't a bad thing at all. So... Uh, but yeah, I would say it's it's a nice story, very well presented, um, interesting for Brian, and less so, I would say, for the Doctor. Mm. Um, but yeah, it'd be maybe when it's all over, when everything's out, it'll be the kind of thing I'll maybe want to go back to and and see it because I'll know how to approach it. Then I'll know mm. that, for example, to stop reading. It, a comic book between those two panels and go on yeah. and do the others <laughs> and then come back to it. Um, so, uh, yeah. so maybe once it's all out, at the moment it feels a bit, uh, a bit disjointed and, and too much for somebody who's not 
closely following all the different parts of it. Mm. That would be an interesting way of doing it, is to, would be to do it in that sort of strictly chronological order like that. Like you say, literally stop reading at one panel, go and listen yeah. to uh, or, re- or read the book and come back. I think the way that they've presented it on the website is you can follow a particular character's path through it. So you can follow the 10th Doctor or the 8th Doctor or Brian um, and, and, and sort of chart their path through it through their stories as well. Well, that's um, an interesting so. way of looking at it. Yeah, so I guess that... Reminds me a bit when um, Marvel and DC Comics in the 80s and 90s used to do their, their super crossovers, and you would get a mini-series of about 12 issues, and then there'd be dozens of comics in between them to read with different characters that wouldn't necessarily be in your thing. I mean, obviously, it's a big marketing thing to get you to buy more comics, but... Uh, at the time, I was buying them, so I would get all. But I would wait until I got the whole lot and then read it, yeah. sort of all through in a one, or get a reprint at a later date that had everything in chronological order. Um, I guess that's the point of this as well. Is it's the it's all the different licensees of Doctor Who is. Uh, so if you if you never listen to Big Finish, this might be a sort of uh, your entry point. Or if you don't want to read the Titan comics, it's a way of getting people in as well. So I suppose. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, it's, just as a feat of organisation, it must have been something uh, that's to be applauded to get everybody working from the same page. Yeah, so it's so James Goss who's behind it. Who uh, he's written some of the novels, some of the big finishes, and uh, um, and, and those Fourth Doctor books uh, that, that that have where he's done the City of Death and the Pirate Planet. He's uh, right. he's adapted those from from Douglas Adams as well. Uh, but yeah, I think I've probably got more out of it than you because. I've been enjoying different parts of the the Time Lord Victorious. So there's the there's the interest in listening to something new and figuring out where that fits in and what the yeah. links are to the other parts. Um, I think, like we said at the start, Jacob Dudman, absolutely brilliant. Within seconds, I forgot that I wasn't actually listening to David Tennant deliver the Doctor's lines. Um, yeah. There was no no sense that. Uh, it, unlike maybe when you listen to David Bradley because he does some of the big Finnish ones as the first Doctor as well um, or some of them they, they use Peter Purvis some of them use William Russell uh, yeah. and they're all all three are completely different performances but they're all also have, have you know elements of the first Doctor in but I think you're much more conscious with those that you're not actually listening to, to William Hartnell whereas yeah. this uh, it just felt like I was listening to, to David Tennant so uh so, no, I, uh, I enjoyed that a lot. Yes. Yes, I thought um, certainly discovering him and his reading is um, probably the best thing to come out of that. And certainly, if I see his name on other audio things, I'll know that at the very least you're guaranteed a very good presentation. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to, to listen to this story and, uh, and share your thoughts on it. That's great. It's a pleasure, as always, to chat with you and uh, the listeners. So uh, thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Uh, I will put a link in the show notes to where we can find you on Twitter and where we can find the Highlanders podcast. Yes, hopefully John and I will uh, we'll get a few more of those under our belts when things are a bit more normal. Fantastic. So, certainly we keep planning. We, have, we haven't forgotten our, uh, our few but loyal followers. <laughs> I would say it's my favourite Doctor Who podcast, so I'll, I'll look forward to... Uh, to, to your return I think you, you're on you're uh, very cutting then your check is in the post <laughs> I think you're still on, on series three is that right um, yes we are halfway okay. through that 
um, waiting. We were at the mid-season break when we were looking to sort of pick up again. But yes, we will do that. And I'm sure we'll probably get something out for the New Year's Day one. We do like to keep up with the contemporary ones as they come out and then go back and fill in gaps for the new who we've missed. Fantastic. I will very much look forward to that. That's great. Thank you very much again. And thanks for listening at home. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. Thank you.